Welcome to FF Plus, a new spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. Here you will find a little bit of everything, from what's been entertaining us, to trailer reactions, industry hot topic conversation, and even film award predictions. We hope you'll enjoy this addition to the Feelin' Film lineup and join us each week. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone, to a very special naval-themed episode of FF+. That's right, we've got ships aplenty to discuss tonight. The sailing kind, the rocket-propelled-into-space kind, and the fighter jets launching off of aircraft carriers kind. hoo That's right, we're on the highway to the danger zone. We are excited to be back for FF Plus tonight. I'm Aaron, and with me, as always, is Patrick. What's up, everyone? We have not done an FF Plus in, it feels like, a couple of weeks now? Maybe longer? I don't know. We've been off this summer. Normal schedules have not applied, so a lot of weirdness has been going on. It's going to actually continue throughout the rest of this summer as we move into our Director Battle Month series in August, and that means that... We're going to have a couple of in-theater picks we want to cover that are going to get thrown in there somewhere, and we just don't have enough Sundays to record, so some of those will be on Thursday nights instead. But uh, good for us. We were able to get an FF Plus out tonight. I'm really excited because a certain trailer that I just teased dropped, and perfect timing for us to talk about it, and we absolutely want to talk about it. But before fighter jet side of the podcast, we do have a couple other ships to discuss. And the first one of those, Patrick is a documentary that I recently saw. It actually was uh, playing at SIF earlier this year, but I didn't catch it at the time. And I got a chance to see it, thankfully. This one is called Maiden. And I knew nothing about this going in. So I was totally blind. I heard from uh, Matt Neglia, who runs the Next Best Picture podcast, uh, one of our collaborators. He told me it was his favorite documentary of the year. And so when he said that, putting it above Apollo 11, that's pretty incredible praise. And I was like, okay, I gotta go check this out, right? So the plot is that the story, it's the story of Tracy Edwards, who at the time was a 24-year-old cook on uh, charter boats, and she becomes the skipper of the first ever all-female crew to enter this thing called the Whitbread Round the world race. And this was in 1989. Now, not the white bread. It's whip. not. It's, it's okay. missing an E, thankfully. Okay. But it, it, that is the first, like, hiccup you have to get over. It's like whip bread around the world race. Like, first of all, why do you call it that? What is that? Like, that is, I'm sure it's somebody's name. I didn't do the research. That wasn't part of the documentary it was the history of why it was named that. For whatever reason, that's what it's called. And it is exactly what it's described as. It's an around-the-world race for yachts and sailboats. And at the time that uh, this takes place in 1989, there were a, there was a big gap, I would say, in the way that the yachts were built. So you had a lot of them that were bigger and faster, and they were clearly going to win. And so they were starting to do kind of classes and break it down a bit. Well, the documentary follows Tracy's story, and it starts with her at a young age— Gives us a little bit of background into how she grew up, um, what her parents were like, and how she ended up getting onto a yacht 
Um, she was a little bit of a Bedouin, just kind of moving around from place to place. Got on there as a cook. Pretty much learned that everybody in this whole sailing world was mostly men. But she was having a blast, and she loved it, meeting very famous people in the process. And ultimately, she got excited about this Whitbread Round the World race because she loved being on a boat so much, and so she wanted to take part in it. And everybody laughed at her. It's 1989. The world was still very sexist. It, it was actually hard to watch this at times, to be honest, because while we know that the world has probably made a lot of progress in this area, just hearing some of the interviews, man, with like the journalists from the time and some of the other sailboat captains, they may not feel this way now, but they were making it very clear how they felt at the time. And she just wasn't welcome, you know, even with her place as a cook on a boat that was going to be in the race, that was hard for her to accomplish. And so she just said, you know what? I want to do it. I want to race and I want to be accepted as equal. And so she ends up getting this crew of women together and she wants an all female crew to be the first ones to be in this race. And they end up getting this old boat. When I saw it, my jaw dropped because I couldn't believe all the work they had to do to get this ship ready to sail. And they did it all themselves, man. Like they didn't have people helping them. They just a bunch of women went into the shipyard and made this thing ready to go. And it ended up coming in really handy later on. So the race itself, it actually starts in Southampton, England, and it's composed of multiple legs. And they, they sail the first leg to Uruguay, and then they go across the southern hemisphere of the United States, or not the United States, sorry, of the world. <laughs> there I go, I'm American. Of course the United States is the world. They go across the southern part of the globe into Australia for a couple stops, and then they come back, and they stop in the U.S., um, Uruguay again, I believe, at some point, and then up back to England. Some of the legs are really slow where they have to deal with things like, you know, no wind, and that can be pretty problematic when you're a sailboat. Um, others in the southern area, they were dealing with lots of frozen weather and tumultuous seas. I was pretty shocked, honestly, because there was an incredible amount of footage in this documentary from the race itself, and, you know, it's got... It's, it's a typical documentary style where it's intermixed with interviews of the crew and Tracy and other people in the present kind of recounting the story. But there's a lot of footage. And it was amazing to me that people had the foresight to capture stuff like that. You know, it was before GoPros and cell phone cameras and things like that. And uh, it, we got to see lots of the obstacles that they faced. Even getting funding for Tracy's boat ended up coming down to her having a very, very randomly lucky, famous acquaintance. Um, it's pretty fun when you find out who that was and how that happened. It was like mind-blowing, honestly. So, yeah, man, they, they go on this race, and they embark on it, and it takes them 167 days to finish, but they finish. They are the first female all-crew to do that in this race, and I'm not going to give you any of the details about what happens on the legs and how it all goes and where they place because there is some drama in the filmmaking, even though it's a documentary. I, like I said, I didn't know any of this going in and I was pretty, you know, intrigued as I was learning about it in the time. And it was a big deal, especially in the sailing community. This, this started to change the game for them. And Tracy's big thing was she wanted other women who loved this sport and this hobby and this um, joy of sailing as much as she did to have a place. And so she did. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, it's uh, made by a man named Alex Holmes, who's the director. He's a, a Brit himself, and I can't go quite as high as Matt and say it's my favorite documentary of the year. Apollo 11, which we're going to talk about next, still holds that slot for me, but it is my second favorite documentary of the year, and I've seen quite a few great ones. I think it's worthy of seeing on the big screen, too, honestly, because of the footage uh, and just seeing this boat out at sea. Maybe I'm biased because I was in the Navy. That might have something to do with it. But um, it was inspiring and a really, really cool story, man. That's really great. Something you said stood out to me in relation to one of my responses to Apollo 11, which we can kind of segue into if you'd like. And it's the fact that some of the ridicule, some of the pushback that she was getting you it felt almost not like a period piece but it felt kind of weird because those times have sort of changed so being kind of pulled back into that and experiencing something that we're not necessarily used to or at least not to that extreme i think is something really powerful in storytelling when you can do it in a documentary environment i think that says a lot about the creativity behind the editing and behind the direction of that documentary and that alone, I think, is worth experiencing a movie like that. Absolutely. And a great point. And there's a, there's a scene like that that it immediately makes me think of in Apollo 11, where we get a first pan through the control room at Houston. And I remember thinking to myself, it's all white dudes. Like, it's a literal row of people. Like, people always joke and say, oh, everybody looks the same. It literally is a bunch of white guys some with and some without glasses, but otherwise they looked exactly the same. It was crazy. And it's documentary footage. Like you said, it's not uh, a fictional narrative that is telling a story and trying to make a point. This is reality. And this is what sometimes we, I think, tend to forget or not focus on enough. And it, and it is powerful. It is kind of even sh- like, like I said, it was shocking to me to see the sexism in Apollo. No, no, sorry. The sexism in Maiden on display, even though, it really shouldn't be shocking because I, you know, in my knowledgeable side of my brain, I know that that has existed. But anytime I see it in action and in actual tangible process, it's it's hard to watch. There's something visceral about seeing actual reactions to things and real footage of things going on versus the Hollywood depiction. Because I think our brains by default, when we see we've talked about this with biopics, when we see something portrayed on screen, we subconsciously question its reality. Not necessarily because we think it's lying, but because we know that a narrative is crafted with a point. Biopics are crafted for a reason. You are capturing something from a person's life or an event in history in a way that you feel like is going to appeal to your audience. You're basically saying, here's what I think my audience will enjoy. Take First Man, for example. It's not your typical biopic. We're not talking about the Apollo 11 landing. We're talking about Neil Armstrong, literally Neil Armstrong. And so everything that Chazelle does centers around the life of Neil Armstrong and the tone is different. The shots that we see are not necessarily epic grand things about the space program, although those things are prevalent. But the truth is it's all about him and there's a, there's a purpose behind that. So I think Movies like that and like Apollo 11 give you more honesty, and I say that word loosely, about what you're seeing. 
And so I'll go ahead and segue us into this. I, I think this is my first time getting a chance to watch Apollo 11. I was frustrated that I didn't get to see it in IMAX. I'm still frustrated that I won't get to see it in IMAX because I live in a state that doesn't really care about big, major IMAX releases. In fact, I know that on July 20th, the day that we're celebrating the Apollo 11 moon landing, it is coming back to theaters in certain areas. The closest theater for me is Dallas. So that's not going to happen. I can't run my whole Saturday going down to see an hour and a half long documentary, although I'd love to, but I've got a busy day with my family. Yeah, it's too bad, man. I'm actually really sad for you because it is an incredible experience on the IMAX screen and it is the way it needs to be seen or it really begs to be seen. And I looked at the list and there are a ton, a ton of cities getting showings. I mean, so many. And I was just really disappointed that you were going to miss this. But I hope that our listeners will have an opportunity to do that. You can actually go to Apollo11movie.com. I should probably verify that, but I'm pretty sure that that's the website. And you can see the list and you can actually get tickets right there on it. So you have time. This episode's coming out on a Friday morning or late Thursday night. You've got a day and a half to find notice. Uh, go out and see this in a theater if you can. So we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. But this week is special because we're celebrating not just the landing, but everything leading up to this. Yesterday, I was, I'm sorry, Tuesday was the day that the Apollo 11 actually launched 50 years ago, Tuesday. And I was completely nerding out among my coworkers. I was going around saying, happy Apollo 11 launch day, happy Apollo 11 launch day. And people were like, what's that? And I'm like, you need to get cultured. If you guys aren't familiar with this spectacular event in not only American history, but world history, you can do like me and get educated by checking out this really, really cool app called JFK Moonshot. I found it, I think it was actually in an Instagram post. It was one of the advertisements uh, a couple of weeks leading up to this big event. Essentially what it is, it's an application that is built using AR technology and it allows you to experience not only the stuff leading up to it, like the ability to uh, test the Saturn V rockets while they're on the ground. Basically what you can do is you uh, start your mission and you face your camera to like a, a really empty space and you can position the Saturn V rocket as it sits on the launch pad, test the rockets, you can see what's going on there, you can get information about what happens leading up to the launch. But then on Tuesday, another part of the application opened that allows you to follow the mission as it's happening. So at any point right now, I can open up this app, I can launch the mission, and it takes me exactly to the point 50 years ago right now at what's happening. Maybe not when they're sleeping necessarily, but some of the big events. Like It tells me what stage they're in, how far they are away from the the moon, what the next step is. You can go back and check out the previous ones. You can relaunch the Saturn V and actually see the rocket take off in AR. It's pretty spectacular. That's pretty cool. And along with that, a coworker of mine, I don't know if it's tied to this app, but there's a website that you can go to that does a lot of similar stuff. It allows you to follow the, the mission in real time using uh, video, using audio clips, things like that. And it really brings you in 
to that experience. And I think Apollo 11 as a documentary is one of the few docs that I've experienced where I have felt immersed in the experience of what took place. And a lot of that, honestly, Aaron, has to do with how big the shots are, how absolutely spectacular the the shots we get. From the very beginning, we're getting these – first of all, I thought if I didn't know this was a documentary, I would think it was a motion, like an actual feature because of how crisp, because of how much we, how much restoration was taken towards a lot of this footage. There's no grains and all this stuff. It's just very crystal clear, at least from my television point of view. Obviously, not having seen it in IMAX, I couldn't explain if, if that was the case. But from the very beginning, we get these just massive shots of the machines that are carrying the the rocket to the launch pad and getting these guys ready. It's it's beautiful, it's breathtaking, and it's very intentional because we're getting slow pans of landscapes, we're getting wide shots of the audience at the the launch location getting ready. We're getting these really great wide shots of the the folks at Capcom who are all involved in it. And the whole experience of watching it makes you feel like you're actually in the moment with each of these types of people. I remember thinking, watching the rocket get ready and then watching it launch and then having it cut back to the crowd, I felt like I was in the crowd with them clapping and getting goosebumps. And I love that. I love the fact that I can I can participate in this because I didn't get to. I mean, this was this was 1969. I wasn't even born yet. And the only the closest I've ever gotten to experience this is the miniseries from the Earth to the Moon. And that was pretty amazing. But it compares nothing to something like this. I also love the fact that as risky as this is, there is zero story tethering the footage together. I I was trying to explain this to my dad and to other people who uh, want to see this, that you won't get cuts to Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin as they are today reminiscing about what that was like. You're getting voiceover from actual newscasts. You're getting interviews from the astronauts as they were getting prepared to go. And let's just back up and, and say that documentaries aren't really spoilers. I mean, I'm not getting, we all know what happened. So I'm, I'm not really spoiling anything. They made it to the moon? If we really did go to the moon. So oh, for, for all the conspiracy theorists out there, I'm sorry, but I'm going to spoil this for you. <laughs> we did. Suck it. Okay. That's all I'm saying. And taking that kind of risk really has an incredible payoff because I think it, increases the authenticity when you say, okay, we're going to take what we have. We're not going to manufacture anything. We're not going to put anything in there that wasn't in there. The editing puts everything together. And I think that's the magic of, of really great editing. I believe the director also edited the, the feature as well, which kudos to him. If this doesn't get a nomination at the, at least I'm going to be really sad because it's incredibly well put together. Nothing feels out of place. Everything feels sequential. I love the fact that there is only there are only a couple of modern day pieces that 
are a part of this documentary, one being the music, which is pretty phenomenal. It's used very deliberately at what I would consider the four big tense, tense moments, the takeoff, the, the lunar descent, the ascent, and then the reentry back into the Earth's atmosphere. We, we take those things for granted, Aaron. We take the fact that these guys took off, they landed, they took off again and had to hook up with the Columbia, and then they had to get back home into the Earth's atmosphere without burning up. All these things I'm thinking, oh yeah, of course we did that. This is the no. first <laughs> time we have ever done all four of these things together. It's mind-blowing. It, it is it is absolutely mind-blowing when you see it in action and you... It's kind of like I was talking about earlier, in a way, where, you know, you, you think about, oh, everybody used to be white and look the same, but then when you see it, like, in reality, you're like, oh, that actually happened. And it's the same thing with the technicals here. It's like, wait, what? how did we... In 1969? With 1969 technology, they did that? And we haven't done it since? Like, we aren't even, like, ballsy enough to try it again with all the stuff we can do now? And, yeah, I, I completely agree with you, especially the landing and the redocking. Those parts for me, and First Man gave me a sense of that, probably the best I'd had up until now, of just, but this, this confirmed, like, all, how scary that is. I mean, that's the part, I think, where you realize that, that thing, that lander taking off, Patrick, coming, go leaving the moon on that pod. To try and get into orbit and redock, to me, is the most terrifying part of this entire mission. Because you're not going to probably blow up. And if you can't get through the atmosphere, you're just going to fall back down onto the moon and you're done. You're done. You're going to be the first people not just to land on the moon, but the first people to die on the moon. And you're going to die slow. Because you're just going to run out of food and water. And oxygen or whatever. And it's... It's terrifying. The The risks that these guys took really stood out to me in this as well. Yeah, and I think about Michael Collins, the the guy that stayed in Columbia, who has been portrayed a couple of times and has been asked as his character, as, you know, what, do you, you know, what was it like up there for you? And he said, you know, I've got some good books that I could read. But there was something said in one of the newscasts that he was essentially in isolation for 45 minutes as he was making his way on the backside of the moon out of communication with these two guys. And then you think about that for what, four days? Is it three or four? I can't remember how long they were actually on the surface of the moon. I think it was like three or four days. They compared him to Adam. They said the, yeah. the most isolated any human man has been since Adam, which yeah. is true. Absolutely. And then to be 50% in charge of redocking with the, the limb bringing those guys back in and then having to jettison it and then move back. It, it made me realize how important he was because we, we think about Neil Armstrong first and foremost, first man to land on the moon. And then we think about Buzz Aldrin, you know, the second guy and we know Michael Collins, but we don't think about his importance. And Apollo 11 does something I think that is incredibly important to any team built concept any team built project and that's that everybody matters and when you think about that near the end of the documentary there's this fantastic i don't know who says it, it's either all it's one of the three but they comment on how incredibly grateful they are for every person 
that was involved in getting them to the moon and specifically calling out those folks that built the machines. In fact, I want to kind of give kudos to from earth to the moon. There were a couple of episodes in the series where that is called out. There's one early on during one of the, the hearings after Apollo, Apollo one, where one of the astronauts is testifying and he talks about the, the three men that, that perished. And he says that one of them, what he remembers is that he went and shook the hands of the people, not who made the equipment, but those who made the machines that helped build the equipment and how he never, I think it was Ed White that he was, he was referring to, but he said that he wanted to make sure that every person had that opportunity to be thanked and, and, and be recognized. And then there's an episode later called Spider that centers around the limb that was built prior to Eagle and all the stuff that went along with it, all the challenges, but basically all the kinks that were worked out in Spider that helped Eagle, which became the limb that actually landed on the moon, be successful. That episode is probably my favorite of all of the From Earth to the Moon episodes. So if you, if you get a chance to sit down and watch any episode, Aaron, I would recommend watching that one for sure. They're all really great, but that's my favorite because of the fact that it highlights those boots on the ground folks that will never ever get to see what happens inside the spacecraft. They'll never be able to see what actually happened on the moon, but they're the ones that actually made the stuff go. And I love, love, love the fact that this documentary pays a little bit of a tribute to those folks. Well, they could see now if they watch Apollo 11 and they're still alive. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But you're right in the moment, it, you know, and it does a lot of stuff like that. And that's the, benefit of having this found footage i mean there's so much so much that's incredible about the fact that this even exists all this footage sat around somewhere in an archive patrick in like a in a dusty room like it's like a movie in and of itself that this stuff was down somewhere in the ether just there waiting and people found it and were like hey let's make some great content out of this and they were able to put it together and of course the technology to do that but one of the coolest things for me in this particular now it is just as an experience so physically tangible that it is amazing to me that a movie can generate that feeling in you. Like when the rocket takes off, it is an emotional moment that I can tell you I it's unlike anything I've ever had in, in a theater before. I've had big bombastic moments with incredible blockbuster movies plenty of times. But that, knowing it was real, <laughs> is just unbelievable to be at that perspective as the rocket is blasting off into space. And one of the things I love, love, love the most about Apollo 11, and it was confirmed in this rewatch that I did before we talked about it tonight, was the end. It doesn't just say, and they came back through the atmosphere and boom, they're at home. It takes the time to spend just a few minutes showing us what the landing was like what the recovery was like, and I guess, again, bias from the Navy perspective, but I loved seeing the ships out there to greet them, seeing the signs and the politicians and everybody that was there. I love seeing them coming into the ship and how they were paraded through into a quarantine zone and kept alone for the longest time. I was really fascinated by that because it was something I'd never even seen portrayed in a movie before. You know, I'd seen First Man, so I'd seen all these other parts of it, but I hadn't seen that happening. I also was even more impressed with First Man, like in hindsight, because 
the performances, I think, by Gosling and Corey Stoll as Buzz are insane when you watch them in reality and you see how just accurate they really were. I mean, I felt like they did such a great job of capturing those characters. The way that I saw them interacting in real life um, was it was just pretty awesome. Um, and so those the two movies will you know forever be tied due to the proximity of their release and of course mm-hmm. being about the same thing. But for me, they they just form like one of the most incredible tandems, uh, pieces of connected cinema that I think I've ever been able to experience. And for those that have issues with it, they also have a couple of great shots of the, the U.S. flag and some moments with that. So if you've had issues with that in the past for certain movies, know that with a documentary like this, you're going to get that. I do want to say this uh, before we move on in regards to the to the music and the use of music. I really was surprised that it wasn't used at all like there was actually the absence of music the moment that neil armstrong said his famous words one small step for man one giant leap for mankind which i was really glad about because just like first man i think apollo 11 was not just about landing on the moon it was about the journey getting there. that's what this documentary was about it was about the whole mission the documentary starts the day that they take off and it ends the day that they land. And we're, we're, we're in it with them every second, pretty much, within an hour and a half time frame. And I like the fact that the landing of the moon, which is monumental, didn't need any musical drama behind it to make it more spectacular than it was. Because back in the day, there was no music when Neil Armstrong was stepping off the porch And there was no music when he said those famous words. So again, we get that immersion. We get that sense of we're in this with you. We're watching it on television. We're in the control room. We're hearing these words and we're hearing them as if we would be hearing them back in 1969. So I give incredible kudos to that kind of decision making and that kind of filmmaking. Me as well, my friend. It is an amazing, amazing piece of cinema. Matt Morton's score is still my favorite of the year as well. It's held up. This is still my favorite movie of the year. We're in July. Nothing has beat it yet. Uh, will anything? I don't know. I guess we'll see. But it is awesome. And I really do hope that as many of you listening right now that can get the chance to go see this Saturday, July 20th in a theater near you, make the time. Make the sacrifice, clear your schedule enough to get this in. It's not a long film, but it's a chance to do something really cool, especially being on the 50th anniversary itself. And um, it's something you just, you'll remember forever, especially as a film fan. So check it out if you can. All right, Patrick. Well, that leads us to the last film on our schedule tonight. And that is something we're going to do a little bit of. Talk. I feel the need, the need for speed. I was blown away today, like most, when all of a sudden tweets started popping up on the old Twitter feed of Mr. Tom Cruise surprisingly busting into Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con. And of course... What does that mean? Well, what does Tom Cruise got coming up next? Well, he's got this little bitty movie, this little bitty sequel to a movie that we love coming up called Top Gun Maverick. And sure enough, shortly after 
he hits that stage, he is introducing the first teaser trailer footage for Top Gun Maverick, which is coming in June of 2020. And I love our listeners, Patrick, because they know how much this movie means to me, particularly. They know it's in my top five of all time. And I got tagged. (laughs) I've never been tagged in so many things in my life in a short span. I had everybody in the world, like, it felt like posting the trailer and tagging me in it. It felt amazing. And I was trying not to watch it because I was at home. I was not at home yet. I'm sorry. I was not at home. I was at work. And then I was traveling on my really ridiculously long commute home. I didn't want to watch this on my phone, right? I wasn't going to watch it at all. And then there's a sailor who actually worked for me early part of my career in the early 2000s. Um, He was a yeoman like me, Uh, but he's pretty awesome. And he went on to become an officer and become a pilot. He's a, he's a Navy aviator right now. And he told me that I had to watch it. So I was like, all right, bro, you're the only person in the world that I would break this for because you're telling me it's safe and you're freaking out and your opinion on this kind of important since, you know, you are the naval aviator. And so I watched it, Patrick, and I actually filmed it and I put a film, a, a video of it up in our Facebook group of me watching it. And I, it's amazing. I mean, I don't know what to say other than, oh my God, I, all of my fears, all of my potential worries are gone. There's really not any story in that trailer. It is a nostalgic trip down memory lane. We get these quick flashes of all of these things from the original Top Gun that are the iconic moments. We get aerial footage that made my jaw drop. I cannot wait. I don't know if you were aware of this, but they came out in an article recently, I think it was just this week, announcing that the majority of the aerial footage is not CGI. It's actual planes dogfighting. The Navy did this. I I, I can't freaking wait to see this in real life. I mean, some of the shots at the end of this trailer, man, when the the jets come around the corner in the mountains and when cruise inverts, I I just, ah, I mean, it's like you're having a moment. I was having a moment and I'm so freaking hyped for this movie. I I can't wait. I did you, what did you think? I'm just babbling. I haven't seen it yet. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) I was just going to wait for your face to just go. Not okay. Not okay at all. Well, I, when it dropped, I, this week has been incredibly busy. So as you know, I mean, and listeners, just a little inside baseball. I haven't been able to really chat it up much with Aaron this week because work's just been crazy with lots of different things. But I had a chance to sit down. I took two and a half minutes out of my day, and I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm excited. It feels like a sequel. It feels like it fits. The biggest benefit this movie gets is the fact that Tom Cruise does not age. This takes place 20 years later, but it could easily be taking place just a few years after the events of Top Gun because of the fact that Tom Cruise looks like he's only a few years older than his Top Gun counterpart. But I love the fact that that 20-year gap is acknowledged, 20-plus years is acknowledged. I love the fact that we're getting a little bit of, okay, here's what's probably going on what you've been doing ed harris for the win i mean come dude, on dude it, it, i could not imagine a better casting the, the voiceover i didn't realize who it was and then when he when i see him for the first time i was like 
if anybody's going to take over for Viper role, basically, like, like he's perfect. Yeah. And I think that meeting the new flyers is going to be a lot of fun because we're going to get, I'm pretty confident we're going to get a brand new set of attitude in the form of these young folks that are probably going to be given lip to Maverick at some point, And he's going to be much like he did. Yes. And so he will be the Viper to their Maverick. Absolutely. So what I'm excited about is what I haven't seen, which to your point, what the actual story is going to be about. We're getting little snippets and that's what teasers are supposed to be, by the way, as a disclaimer, can anybody else be with me on the fact that the teaser before the trailer that's <laughs> happening know. right now is absolutely this. annoying. I know like you. I'm, I'm about ready to just do something I'm not really, you know. I don't happy. think I saw that. So I think you must have seen it on some other feed because I did. I watched the official Paramount trailer site okay. or whatever on YouTube, yeah. and I didn't have anything. Before. It popped Top Gun Maverick on the screen, but that was it. Okay. Well, anyway, but we yes, don't need, that is a terrible, need, terrible trend. We don't need teasers for teasers. It just doesn't doesn't make sense. But overall, I was really happy and I am looking forward to seeing this. I'm looking forward to covering it with you. And I'm looking forward to you giving it five stars and me probably following suit and putting it in the trophy room. Oh, it's already got five stars. <laughs> I mean, it's a matter of like how much higher than five it's going to go. I, right. So, I got to say, I was when it first got announced, I remember us talking about it. We weren't on the podcast. We didn't have like the ff plus or anything at that point of course and i think we might have it might have been announced when josh larson was on to talk top gun with us i think we might have briefly discussed him coming back on for this one um but it was really scary uh and and i think it was either around the time Cruz had done the mummy or right after and it was like wow that's scary but here's the thing that's different even before this trailer that had me at ease first of all Kaczynski directing. Kaczynski's aerial footage in Oblivion, the sci-fi movie that he did with Tom Cruise, is like one of the absolute best things about that movie. It is fantastic. So I knew that he could shoot the action in this movie. Then we got word that Christopher McQuarrie was coming on board to help doctor the script. And at that point, I was, some people were like, oh, that means it's got problems. No, you know what? You know what that told me? That means that they care. And with that man coming on, and if Cruz lets him come on, like Cruz trusts him more than anybody in this entire world as far as artistically. So I had no issue with that. And I was excited because that means to me we're going to get the story we need to get, right? And then lastly is that Tom Cruise cares about this character. This is not The Mummy and some random reboot that he probably did for a good paycheck. This is a character that is iconic and very important to him as a person. He's not going to half-ass it, period. I don't believe there's any world in which he doesn't give 110% to make this movie every bit as good as Top Gun. You know what I mean? I don't think he would allow it not to be. And so I'm satisfied. I have. I feel like I'm validated in those <laughs> trust that I've given them, and I'm ready. I am so ready. The... The book that I've been reading slowly, which I'm glad I'm reading this at a slow pace because it would be easy to just chomp right through this. But the best movie year ever talks about Eyes Wide Shut in one of those in one of its chapters. And of course, Tom Cruise headlines that. And one of the reasons that he does is because he was at the time 
one of the bankable stars. Like when he is on screen, you're going to get your money's worth from the box office sales. Like that's how big he was. And a lot of that started from his charismatic performance as Maverick back in the early 80s, 15 years or mid 80s, 10, 15 years earlier. But you're right, Aaron. When he puts the passion around a character that he adores, he's all in. And I think that comes out in his performance. I mean, we joke a lot about how he's been around and he's he could be chalked up as probably one of the greatest action stars. But I think he's got a lot of charisma and a lot of passion in those characters. And I think that's why they're successful. Ethan Hunt is successful because he cares about Ethan Hunt's character. He cares about that persona not just because it's fun to play. There's a reason why the Mission Impossible franchise has not switched out its Ethan Hunt for other actors or other players like the 007 franchise has. There's a whole different reason why the 00 franchise exists. It's not because it's centered around uh, one actor. It's centered around a character, and they fill actors in to kind of play that. I don't think I'd ever want somebody to play Maverick for sure, or Ethan Hunt, because he embodies those characters because of how much he cares about not only the characters themselves, but the stories in which they they work in, which is why I think he started producing after MI2. Like he really wanted more creative control over the MI franchise because of how deeply he cared about it. I'm not hoping that we get a ton of Top Guns after this. I think this sequel is appropriate. Yep. And I think it's a good not bookend maybe w- without even knowing what the plot's about. I'm just going to say that it, I'm assuming it's going to be a good bookend to to his character. And I'm excited to see what Macquarie did to uh to better the script and overall what the story is going to be in general. Well, we have questions. I have questions. Where the heck is Charlie? Cuz she's not right. in this movie, Kelly McGillis. So that means she's either dead or they broke up and they're not together anymore or they're together and they just chose not to they choose not to have her in a movie which doesn't make any sense so there's got to be a reason I'm interested to find out why Mav is attending a funeral that scares the crap out of me because I want to know who died I have a guess of course it's probably the same guess everybody else does yep. starts with ice and ends with man and that is going to be awful um I think it also could be viper though he was kind of older and, you know, he would have been potentially getting there. Um, could be somebody, you know, somebody that was dogfighting. I think that's why Iceman is probably the most likely, but we shall see. Yeah. I'm already sad to see Mav have to lose somebody else again in his life regardless. And then my big question was, why does it look like he's wearing a freaking space helmet at one point? So <laughs> I went back and I paused it at one of the, like, 15 times I watched this trailer. No shame at all. I'm not done. I'll keep watching it. Um, but anyway, he has, it's, it's like a test pilot helmet. It reminds me, uh, it's more like, it's more like a space helmet than it is a, a true, like, fighter jet style. And at one scene later, he's in, he's talking to someone and you can see the ring where the, like, space helmet ring is, you know, that it, it like locks in around the neck. So there's something up. I don't know if it's something you would wear on a, like, kind of a, not a training, but like an experimental jet, maybe that he's flying. Uh, is Top going? Is Top Gun going to go into space and beat the Fast and the Furious there? I don't know what the heck is happening. Like seriously, it might be something to do with getting up in the atmosphere. 
to a level that they never have before. I'm intrigued, but I'm not intrigued to ever enough to ever watch another Top Gun 2 trailer because I will not do that. I'm done. I'm happy. I am content. I want to know nothing about the story from this point on. So as an admin in our beloved Facebook group, any trailers that pop up in the future with you attached to them, are you just going to delete them like a, like an admin would? No, no, no. I'm, I'm just going to you know hit that little button that I hit all the time as a frequent poster in our Facebook group, a frequent sharer of news that says, turn, turn off, off no, notifications. notifications for this post. Because <laughs> I share all the stuff, and so you guys have no idea. My notifications are blowing up all day. It's insane. It is just really overwhelming sometimes, so I have to just make sure I hit that button. But I don't know why God is seeing it fit, Patrick, to give me personally a new Christopher Nolan movie, a Top Gun sequel, and finally, the Uncharted adaptation I have wanted forever, all in the same year. But I am immeasurably grateful, and I don't know how 2020 could get any better unless, you know what, Chazelle's new movie might end up coming out in 2022, and I think if, if that happens, it could be end up being like the greatest year of cinema in my entire life. 2020 as well, not 2022. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to get your grammar right because we're like, anyway. Well, that's all from us for this edition of FF Plus. We're glad that you guys joined us. Just around the corner, we're heading to Pride Rock to see what director John Favreau does with a great story and some pretty spectacular CGI. The Lion King is up next uh, during our main episode. The next week starts our voting for Director Battle Month. We also have our July donor pick episode in the form of 10 Things I Hate About You. And Aaron Hunley will be joining us for that conversation, plus a bit of fun conversation about why we love movies that take place in high school for our patrons to enjoy. Aaron, this has been spectacular. I've enjoyed this conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.